And I think it wasn't about me having skill as an evangelist or being good at it. It's just my desire to share the love of Jesus. And I think giftedness often gives people purpose and motivation. And I think, and it does come with, um, you know, some tangible results too. But but I really pray uh, that that we'll all feel that passion for those who don't know Jesus and that urgency. Welcome back to the Third Space Studio and welcome back to the Shock Absorber podcast, everyone. It's great to have you along with us. And uh, we've got the band back together today because uh, last week we only had Tim on, but we've got Tim and Stu joining us. Tim, how are you today? Going fantastic. Thanks, Joel. Feeling excellent. Feeling excellent. Yep. Stu, welcome back. Hello, Joel. Hi. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. That's good. Um, you were on holidays for a week. I was on holidays, yes. Had a great holiday. And where did you go? Well, Louise, uh, my wife and I uh, had the privilege of uh, being at our son's wedding, uh, Ethan's wedding. Uh, As did we. Yes, it was a lot of fun. And then after that, we thought we'd take a week off. And so um, we drove up to the Blue Mountains for two nights and we went out to parks for two nights in New South Wales where where there's a, a big um, radio telescope called The Dish that we affectionately yeah. call The Dish. A movie based on that? There is a movie. I checked that out. <laughs> and then we went down to a place called Gunda Guy and another Australian icon. There was a dog on a tucker box there. So we went and hung out with the dog on the, the, dog on the tucker <laughs> box. The dog on the tucker box. And went for a swim in the Murrumbidgee and stayed on a farm. So it was very restful. Wow. Yeah, did a bit of reading, cruising around. It was good. What was the highlight? The highlight was my wife's family come from Juni. Okay. And we went to Juni on the, on the trip. And it turns out that Lou's... Uh, great-grandfather owned two massive hotels in Juni and we went to the museum and they even have a file on the family. They were a pioneering family of Juni. So that was a lot of fun to find out some family history from Lu- Louise's family. They are called the Edmonds in Juni. So if anybody wants to do a bit of looking up of the Ancest- history of Juni. Bit of Ancestry.com. Um, bit of Ancestry.com. <laughs> well, it's excellent. Um, very, very interesting to find out where other people come mm. from. Which I've never done anything with my own It's a bit family. like that SBS show, Know Where You Come From yeah. or whatever, but Lou is not a famous <laughs> celebrity. But, yeah, it was fascinating yet. watching her. Oh, but, but, yeah, yeah, true, <laughs> true, actually. So, yeah, it's, that's all short. But, um, yeah, but it was fascinating watching her reaction to finding stuff out about, oh, my goodness, oh, wow, you know, it was really cool. Yeah, yeah cool. it was fun. Well, let's get into this uh, episode. Um, well, the season that we have titled... Uh, this particular season is uh, whatever happened to evangelism, and I believe that was actually your idea, Stu. Mm-hmm. So, congrats to you for coming out with such a great title. Um, why don't we start though talking about uh, a cultural artifact that we always like to to pull up, and that you've actually chosen a Larry Norman song. Do yes. you want to tell us about that? Because yes. Larry Norman is one of your favourite artists. He is one of my favourite artists. He uh, was an artist that had finished he, the, the majority of his career. I mean, he still played for a long time, but he finished his career probably 10 or 12 years before before I started to get interested in popular music. But uh, a youth minister that I had in the 80s uh, loved Larry Norman and he gave me some Larry Norman records. And what I was fascinated about Larry is uh, that was my entree into uh, the Jesus movement of the 1970s. And that was a really interesting phenomenon because evangelism became a very key theme of the Jesus movement in the 1970s. 70s and there was a lot early 1970s America, Australia, England and other places around the world, a lot of young people got very confident to share their faith and this song uh, by Larry Norman who was part of that movement is called Why Don't You Look Into Jesus, He's Got The Answer and the reason I picked this is because uh, Larry was 
he described himself as too Christian for the world, but too worldly for the church. I think that's how he described it. I can't remember exactly. And by that, what he meant was that he he would sing about things that the world would find a bit boring because he was singing about Jesus. But then he also would sing about things that the church would be embarrassed by. So he wasn't worldly in the sense that he was... Um, uh, Christians use the, the word worldly to describe, you know, being, um, I suppose, not holy enough um, and compromising faith i'm not talking about that but the the nature of his lyrics was something that the church found quite confronting so the song i've picked to as an example of this is a song he played at a church one night and as he was singing the song he was halfway through the song first um verse of the song and the minister walked he just started his set and the minister walked out onto the stage and said i took the microphone and said oh thank you mr norman i'm sure you're really busy it's been terrific having you here tonight (laughs) and larry's like what i've only just started so that's a kind of example but just as a bit of fun i thought i'd read out some of the lyrics of this song that was so controversial and it and it's still quite confronting to to this day because he's singing to his generation and he has such a huge evangelistic heart. That's the thing about Larry. He's really keen to speak into the lives of people of his generation. And he sings this. He says, Sipping whiskey from a paper cup, you drown your sorrows till you can't stand up. Take a look at what you've done to yourself. Why don't you put the bottle back on the shelf? Yellow, si- yellow fingers from your cigarettes. Your hands are shaking while your body sweats. Why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answer. Gonorrhea on Valentine's Day, you're still looking for the perfect lay. You think rock and roll will set you free. You'll be death you'll be dead before you're thirty three deaf before you're thirty three. Shooting junk till you're half insane, broken needle in your purple vein. So that was being sung at a church, and so the church thought that was a bit too confronting. But what I find really interesting about that is that was on one of his uh, most famous and archetypal albums that was really popular with his generation because he was speaking to people who were looking for answers in in all of these kind of places. And Larry's like, no, no, the answer is Jesus. You've got a question. How do I have a fulfilling life? How do I live my life to the full? You're going through all the normal channels of our, that our generation looks into. But I've got something to tell you. Actually, the surprising thing is Jesus has the answer to what you're looking for. And he was very, very unapologetic for for speaking about how wonderful Jesus was. And so there you see uh, a guy who's singing quite raw uh, lyrics, but also quite powerfully pointing uh, people to Jesus for their hope. So, yeah, that's why I picked it for today. Yeah, right. Do you think that he wrote that originally as a response to the Cultural Revolution that was obviously going on in the 60s at the time? Yeah, I, th- I mean, we don't have time to unpack that mm. in a great degree today, but uh, one of the things that I think I like about Larry Norman's music is he speaks to his generation and he also speaks to the older generation. He speaks to Christians, but he also speaks to um, politicians. He's got some political songs. One's called The Great American Novel where he questions a whole heap of the priorities of his nation. And, uh, you know, for example, he even questions, why did we go to the moon? Like, he, uh, that, that I, I think you know, I'd have to look up the lyrics of that song mm. deliberately, but he, the, the song goes something like, um, um, we, uh, we've shot all our dreamers and there's no one left to feed us. Oh, let's send somebody to the moon to gather information. And all they brought back was a big bag of rocks. Must, <laughs> must have been nice rocks. So it's not like every song is, is like a, a worship song. It's not like every song is apologetically, uh, you know, an apologetic uh, or an evangelistic song. He's also speaking about 
the the world around him. So I and think that's a Christian a, in that, right? I think that's really interesting. Yeah, being a Christian in that as well. So yeah, I think that's really interesting. Cool. Well, thank you for enlightening us again with your Larry Norman uh, knowledge. It's great. Mm. <laughs> yeah, um, Tim, uh, we've we termed this uh, season whatever happened to evangelism. And we defined evangelism last week, you and I, when we were on the pod. And can you just remind me again, euangelion? Is that uh, euangelion is kind of the, the Greek word which we've, yeah, uh, anglicised into uh, evangelism. Yep. Yeah, yep. right. But it, uh, basically, it's, it's the good news. Uh, it's, mm. it's, uh, it's an announcement uh, that something great is, has happened or is about to happen. Mm. Uh, and so in the, contra- the cultural context of the time was often a message from the emperor. Um, particularly that a new emperor had been um, made, established, uh, or that something great was happening in Rome. So it kind of had this um, Roman uh, context to it. And so when the gospel writers are using it to talk about Jesus, uh, there's a bit of a critique there as well, that actually they're announcing a good news that's almost uh, or even better than an emperor. Um, And so there's a little bit of a political edge to it as well which is interesting to explore uh, but essentially it's the good news it's the proclamation that um, Jesus has been born which in the context of the whole story of scripture is that the the Christ that had been promised in the Old Testament has come been fulfilled uh, and then it's the ministry of Jesus his life his death his resurrection um, and then what that then means for you know, the the hopes and dreams for the Jewish people and how the Gentiles are then grafted on into that, as uh, Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, 11. Um, and then, yeah, it goes out into the whole world, which you see in Acts. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great um, proclamation of the good news that mm. Jesus uh, has has come and what he's done for us. And it was really cool. I thought last week that we, we, we kind of came to the conclusion that we're all evangelists. We can all be doing our own according to the gifts that God's given us. But I thought before we kind of get into that a little bit, um, Stuart, just wondering how would you like to define evangelism or what do you see as why is it so important to share the good news? Yeah, one of the things I did on my holidays was listening to the podcast. It was really good to listen to the Shock Absorber <laughs> as I was driving along in the car and I really enjoyed it. It was really good. And uh, yeah, I really agree with the definition. I, I love, Tim, the, the idea of using this word good news uh, in such a way because yeah, to have a um, boundary rider from the Roman Empire riding around the different Roman mm. cities and towns to proclaim the good news that a son has been born to the emperor. And then Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 to 16 comes and says um, that he has come with the good news to uh, proclaim the good news to the kingdom of God has come, repent and believe the gospel. That is so powerful because right from the get-go, Jesus is... Um, declaring himself to be the son of God and he's coming as king and he is the new king and so the the king was the Roman emperor and that would have been blasphemy at one level theologically and it also would have been uh, politically dangerous at the other level because he's challenging the authority of the Roman emperor who was set up as a god on earth claimed to be god and was the king over Israel at the time and and so Jesus coming as king uh, declaring the good news is so striking from that point of view but the other thing I love about that is that Jesus inverts power relationships so while the emperor would come and crush the local population with the sword Jesus has come with love and he comes to pronounce the good news and he is the one who is going to defeat sin and death and so he's calling on people to trust in him as he he actually brings real good news not just for those who are under the 
Roman Empire, but for all people. And so it's far more expansive. And of course, Jesus is is God, and He is the King of the universe, not just an empire on earth. So uh, the yeah, at once it is exciting, good news, but it also is terrifying in a sense because it is actually claiming to be greater than any other good news. And I think for Jesus to do that so strongly from the beginning, and that was carried on by his followers. Like when you see Paul traveling around in Acts, he's actually unashamedly claiming that the good news is the best news, and he is a great evangelist as a result. Mm. I'm just... um in terms of that, how do you personally think about sharing the good news with people? Because we we talked about last week, we actually <laughs> named and named named you. We didn't shame you. That um, we do think you do have the real gifts of evangelism, and God has given those to you, which we really, um, I think, we Tim and I have both experienced you preaching the word to us and then inviting us to become Christians. Um, I'm just wondering, in terms of your perspective, uh, we do think you're really bold at proclaiming the gospel to people. Um, how do you go about that? Because if you do, if we think we do, you do have that gift. What what do you see, see is important when you are talking to people about the gospel? Yeah, well, in, in Ephesians chapter four, verse eleven, uh, we're told this, and and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. So I think there, as Tim, you said last week, there is uh, a gift of evangelism. Um, there's, there, there is a, a particular gift of the Holy Spirit that, um, that people who are evangelists uh, love to share the good news and delight in sharing the good news, look for opportunities to share the good news and feel the need to share the good news. Mm-hmm. So I think that the Holy Spirit motivates and convicts some Christians deeply about that. But as you said on the podcast last week, I think that we can all share the good news. And we unpacked that really helpfully last week and we'll continue to do that through the series. But as I thought about that, uh, just briefly, I think a few things have come together in my life that I think have meant that I have a really strong conviction to share the good news. And I I love sharing the good news and I delight in that. And not that I force it uh, on other people to listen to the good news but I love to have an opportunity to, to talk about Jesus and I've had that ever since I was a young boy so um, I think to give that a bit of context my parents actually became Christians when they went to have me baptised when I was little and they weren't actually believers in Jesus when they went to have me baptised but there was still a nominalism a cultural Christianity at the time that meant that it was just a normal thing for people even if they weren't Christian to go and baptize their children and so they went to a local church and spoke to a minister about how in in the words of my father who comes from sheffield he's a very practical man he said he said to the minister apparently oh, oh we've come to get our our son done we just want to get him done and it's like this is what you do isn't it tick the box and, tick the box. and apparently the minister said to my mum and dad well do you believe in jesus and dad's like no but we've just come to get him <laughs> baptized and the minister said well maybe it's a good idea to stop and pause for a second just think about what you're wanting to do here and mum and dad went that sounds reasonable and according to mum and dad they went through a series of conversations with the minister and came to realize that they actually hadn't put their faith in jesus so when jesus says the kingdom of god has come repent and believe the good news mum and dad realized that they needed to respond to the good news because they hadn't done that personally that just being 
in the culture didn't make them a Christian. Just having their son baptised in the church didn't make them a Christian, that they actually needed to respond to Jesus' ancient message that we see there in Mark chapter 1. And um, so mum and dad decided to repent and become Christians, turn away from their sin and give their life to Jesus, believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead in payment for their sin so that they could be forgiven and um, have eternal life and receive the Holy Spirit and be adopted as God's children. So apparently that night when they went home, um, mum and dad apparently ceremoniously knelt down on either side of their bed put their hands together presumably and prayed a sinner's prayer and and gave their hearts to Jesus and um, talking to my dad apparently he looked up at mum and said do you feel any different and she said no do you feel any different he said no so dad says so we got into bed and read a book so (laughs) went to sleep (laughs) like they usually did so that that sounds very pedestrian but the impact on their life could be anything but so I got brought up in a home of two people who'd just become Christians so they were absolutely excited about the fact that they'd met the living Jesus and that they'd actually been forgiven and they wanted to share that with other people. And it would only be years later that I realised that mum and dad had actually lost a lot of friends because their friends thought, no, no, we're all cultural Christians. No, you're going too far now by having this right. you know, this approach to following Jesus and believing in Jesus. So mum and dad lost a lot of friends through that. But they invested in their church. And I remember really early on being in primary school uh, helping mum and dad with the youth group. And I remember pouring cordial for the, the youth. And I remember being super excited from a very early age, seeing all these teenagers there. And the reason I was excited was because I was hoping that mum and dad, as they'd shared with us, why are we doing youth group? It's so these teenagers could hear about Jesus and become Christians like we have, so that we can share this good news, so that the, they realise the good news is real and they can go to to be with God in heaven forever too and have that hope of eternal life. So I was excited as each teenager would come through the door thinking, I wonder if that person's going to become a Christian. I wonder if that person is. So now that was actually in the days of the Jesus movement. And I remember my mum and dad wearing a little badge in the early 70s with a one way on it, which is a lot of the Jesus people wore. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was really excited about that. But I remember from an early age just thinking that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who shares the good news because that's what my mum and dad do. And yeah, we go to church and we are discipled and we grow as Christians so that we can share the good news with other people and be a place that can invite other people along. So those two things weren't two separate things. It wasn't like I can choose to invest in this or this. That was being a Christian to do those two things. And I remember as a young child praying for my friends at school, telling my friends at school about Jesus. Um, I actually had a friend, it was 1978, I think, when Billy Graham came to Australia and we went along and mum and dad said, I can invite a friend. So I invited a friend who wasn't a Christian. And then uh, even though apparently I'd made a commitment to Christ earlier, I decided after hearing Billy Graham speak that I'd go down the front and give my life to Jesus and make a recommitment to my life. And my friend saw me get excited and he got excited too and he was excited and he came down with me and he committed his life to Jesus as well. Now, um, I had uh, a friend, we, we moved to the country after that and I had a friend that I'd continue to write letters to him so that to encourage him to go to church but he stopped after that event and didn't go to church but in his letters he kept writing to me and I kept writing to him encouraging him to think about being a Christian and how important it was and he was fine with that so for me it was a natural part of being a person like I get excited about Cronulla Sharks I get excited about my soccer team Sheffield Wednesday I get excited about Jesus and I share about the things I get excited about so for me it, it was something I did anyway I remember in that correspondence that 
soon, soon one of the letters that came back from my friend was, oh, oh, and by the way, I'd be praying for him every night too. So for me, prayer and evangelism, I've always been connected because I've always known that it's God who calls people and all we need to do is tell them about the good news, but it's God who actually through his spirit convicts people. Mm. Anyway, one of the letters that came back, um, my friend said, oh, I've started surfing. Great, that's cool. And then after that, the next letter came, oh, I've met this group called Christian Surfers. And I was so excited. I said, oh, they'll be great. And I kept praying that they would help him to understand Jesus. Writes back, I've become a Christian. And that guy is still a Christian to this day. And I remember how excited I was about that. Then in high school, though, it became harder for me because there was more social um, credibility at stake being a Christian. So I blundered through high school, I suppose I could say, because I didn't really tone it down. And I, I probably had the same similar experience to my parents because sometimes people would actually say, oh, we don't want to hang out with you too much because you're so into Jesus. But I did have a friend that I sat down with at school one day after many chats about Jesus, played soccer together, and I'd just talk about Jesus with my friends and why I was a Christian and why I thought it was good to, to believe in Jesus. And one day my friend, his name was Adam, he sat down with me in between uh, to you know, D block and uh, E block at Kirrawee High School in Solon Shire in Sydney. We sat down for recess, and he said, "I think I want to become a Christian." And I remember just being so excited, and I put my apple down, and we prayed, and he prayed with me, and he became a Christian. But to my disappointment, he turned to me and he said, "But don't tell anyone that I've become a Christian." I said, "Why, Adam?" He goes, "I don't want anyone to treat me like they treat you." <laughs> I'm like, "Wow!" So those kind of experiences, though, didn't phase me. And just quickly, that sort of was, you know, when I was going to youth group, a lot of my friends just went because they were cultural Christians. There was still a bit of Christendom around. And it used to really disappoint me that I was looking for friends who were really excited about Jesus. And when my youth group leader gave me a Larry Norman album, that's why I got so excited about it. Because I'm like, oh, there have been young people in the near distant past who were excited about the good news. Um, so that was kind of influential for me growing up and I think it wasn't about me having skill as an evangelist or being good at it it's just my desire to share the love of Jesus and I think giftedness often gives people purpose and motivation and I think and it does come with um, you know some tangible results too but but I really pray uh, that that we'll all feel that passion for those who don't know Jesus and that urgency so I think that's what I grew up with from my parents and then I took on for myself mm. It's an interesting concept to think about um, losing friends because, Tim, that Barna research that we looked at last week is that people feel like they're well-equipped. They know the Bible well to be able to talk about the good news, but uh, one of the things that are holding millennials back, according to the research, is that they don't want to lose their friends. So I thought it would just be interesting to ask you guys, have, have you guys lost friends because of the gospel? Yeah, I, I can definitely think of some people who um, grew up in you know, the Christian school, some who were growing up in youth group, who moved away from the faith uh, and I guess moved out of my friendship group because of that. Um, I probably didn't do a good enough job of pursuing them as friends, as I could have, um, but they, because they were disassociating themselves from faith, they... And, and faith was so significant to me and church was my primary social group. It was where I wanted to dig in and have my friendships was at the church and 
and because Christ was so central to my identity uh, and the things that I was interested in and the choices that I was making and the places that I wanted to be and spend my time, um, that I think that as they disassociated from faith, disassociated from church, that they then walked away from that. Um, so there was no animosity uh, in that. Mm. I, I've never had someone angry at me um, in that sense, but I've certainly... There are people who I have been friends with in the past I'm no longer friends with um, because I've continued to commit to church as the primary um, place where I, I want to be. That's my identity is, is in Christ and with his people. And so that means that there are those that I um, am not friends with anymore. So, yeah, so I think that's, that's that. Maybe, as I said, I could have done a better job pursuing those friendships um, so that maybe some of that is on me, but also it, I think it was because of that divergence um, in belief in Jesus which contributed to that those loss of friendships. I, I mean, I, I don't think I had a, someone say directly to me, oh, you're being a Christian, so I don't want to be friends with you. Mm. But there's that almost like when you're making a choice to say, I want to go to... I, the time I'm thinking of is I'm going to choose to keep going to the youth community at Saw Revival. Um, and my friends are like, well, we're not going to do that. Yeah, like, well, I still want to hang out with you. And they're like, yeah, that's okay. But then it would just you would kind of just slowly drift apart. Um, Stu, I was going to ask you the question though. In all your years of ministry, you've been in ministry for a very long time. How did how do you think evangelism has shifted? Because we're talking about a shift in evangelism now that people are uh, concerned about actually sharing the gospel. Was it um, like that in earlier years? Do you think, and and how has it changed in your time in ministry? Yeah, I think I think if you go back to the time of Christendom, when it was cultural Christianity was quite common in Australia back before the 1960s, probably 80% of Australians went to church on Sunday. Uh, so there was a lot of people who weren't Christians who went to church, but a lot of people who would have considered themselves Christians. But when you go back to that kind of era, there was a kind of a politeness in Australian society, at least, that suggested that there's some things you just don't talk about in polite society. So you actually don't, it's impolite to talk about something that might offend someone. So the idea was, uh, I think if I think I've got this right, there's three things you don't talk about. You don't talk about politics, you don't talk about sex, and you don't talk about religion. So they were the three. Th- so you can have a personal religion and a personal political view, but don't bring that up in a polite dinner party because you might have an argument. Um, if somebody votes for one side of politics and the other, you know, it's not polite to bring it up because it could cause a conflict. So I think that actually creates a dynamic where it's difficult for the evangelist because we're calling an evangelist someone who's impolite now um people would go to big events like the um i mentioned the you know the big events around the crusades of um billy graham that was like i think so amazing because he was this very clear strong evangelistic voice that was speaking into the culture in the 1958 i think the first crusade was uh, into a society where it was not polite to talk about Christianity and it was sort of intriguing and fascinating and people went along in their hundreds of thousands. I think to this day, Melbourne, I think it's Melbourne Cricket Ground, but I, I might so. be wrong, but yeah, Melbourne Cricket Ground's biggest capacity crowd ever was to see mm. Billy Graham, wasn't to see a sporting event. He had event. a big so turnout at Randwick Race Randwick well. was huge, mm. yeah. So there was a lot of people gave their lives to Jesus at, at that time too and so they followed that up with future crusades as well. But I think, I think that... Um, 
the politeness issue was hard for Christians back then. And I want to say that because sometimes we think that it's harder now to share the gospel than it was in the older days. But actually, it was hard back in the day because if you suggested to someone who went to church that they might not have a personal faith in Jesus, that was rude and not very polite. But then if you fast forward to after the 1960s where we kind of generally call that era era of postmodernism in postmodernism the the kind of politeness idea changes a bit and it becomes less about what are the polite subjects to talk about obviously people in the 1960s are talking about politics sex and religion quite a lot but now it's changed a bit because now it's like oh you do what you want to do and i'll do what i want to do live and let live that was more the kind of idea so it was impolite for me to challenge another person's way of living you can think whatever you want like as long as you don't impose it on me so right through the 70s and 80s and into the 90s i think we've still got that kind of a vibe of people are just going to do what they're going to do and everyone should be able to do what they should be able to do so it was sort of seen as a bit more intolerant of christians to look down on someone else because how dare you say that what you're doing is better than that person so again in that era it was difficult to share the gospel now i think it's changed again because i think it particularly in the 2010s we talked in the last season about how culture has changed at length so you know, i really encourage listeners and viewers to go back and have a listen to those podcasts if they haven't already heard them but one of the big things we talked about was that now um, challenging certain um, or pr- pr- promoting Christianity could actually be seen as harmful. And so through some of the debates that have taken place in the 2000s, the Christian voice has actually been seen as harmful, harmful sometimes and even hateful sometimes. Um, the, the, the roots of that were in the 2000s when the new atheism was on the rise. And for the first time, people like, uh, what are some of the new atheists? Richard Dawkins. Dawkins. Dawkins, Richard Dawkins, yeah. yeah. Richard Dawkins was actually coming out and saying things like, you know, God is this hateful megalomaniac who, you know, is you know, this, that and the other and the spaghetti monster in the sky. And so when Christians are trying to encourage other people to think about Jesus, then people find it like ridiculous and they may find it ridiculous and may even find it hateful and harmful. So even though that's a very challenging environment to share the gospel in, I want to argue that even as, and they're just three different eras of culture, but in each of those eras, it's been difficult to share the gospel for different reasons. And yet I think, what we might want to talk about a bit later in this episode is that since the 1950s there has been a focus on relational evangelism and so while it on the one level it's hard to preach the gospel in our culture but on the other level we've been encouraged more and more over that period of time to think about preaching the gospel to our family and friends so the idea of incarnational uh ministry which again we've talked about in earlier podcasts we can come back to later in this season but an incarnational view of mission is that we need to earn the right to be heard according to some of the early proponents of that idea and the idea was that you don't just bustle into someone's life and tell them about jesus you need to become friends with them first and then once you become friends with them you've earned the right to be heard and then you can share the gospel so there was a thinker called pete ward in the 80s who was a youth ministry specialist who said that he was uh, in the early 80s in London, was seeking to preach the gospel to punks in London. Rather than just preaching to the punks in London, he had to go and buy a pair of jeans first because they wouldn't listen to him unless he had some cultural artifacts that they understood. Mm-hmm. And once he actually entered into their culture and could use their language and their semiotics, then they would listen to the message. The problem, though, is this idea that the gospel, as I said earlier, is always difficult to share the gospel. So the point is, when do I actually... 
you know, I might be embracing someone's culture up until a point, but when do I challenge it? And that became clear to me in the 90s when I actually got asked to go and speak on a beach mission once. And the beach mission leader who rang me up to ask me to go and do a talk at the beach mission said, we'd like to ask you to come to do a talk at the beach mission, but we'd actually like to ask a request. Could you come for five years in a row to give the talks at the beach mission? And I'm like, oh, that's a bit different. What, what, what's the thinking behind that? Uh, well, actually, we don't actually want you to mention the gospel of Jesus in the first two or three years because after you've got to know all the kids in the area of the beach mission and they've got to know you and you've earned the right to be heard, then we want you to share the gospel. And I think that was quite an extreme example of that. But I remember thinking, well, that's hard for two reasons. Because number one, when do you get to the point where you've earned the right to be heard? And secondly, though, if we're really focusing on relational evangelism and we're getting out of the four walls of the church and we're going to the pub and we're drinking with our friends in the pubs and we're being where they go so that we can actually earn the right to share the gospel with them, what if we, we have the reverse happen? Like, What if we share the gospel at that moment and they reject us? And it's actually very costly to lose your friends and your family for the gospel and I've lost friends and I've lost family members because of my belief in Jesus that that um, it's not that I've chosen to walk away from people but I've had people choose to walk away from me uh, not just drift apart but I have had some people say Stuart because of your beliefs I just don't want to hang out with you anymore and and that's really really hard but I think part of we we're talking about um, people who are evangelists I think the thing about an evangelist is it's someone who's willing to go to the point of not only sharing the gospel with someone in love, not necessarily having to wait to earn the right to be heard to do that, but willing to just talk about Jesus in everyday conversation so that they might be able to bring the gospel up for, with people. But to share the gospel with someone, but not only that, to be prepared to think this person might reject me for this. So I love them so much that I'm willing to actually risk the relationship for them. And as a result, I'm willing to to share the gospel with someone knowing that they might reject me. But not only that, I think an evangelist actually realises that the gospel needs to be responded to. And so Jesus says that in his explanation of the gospel in Mark 1, where he says, repent and believe the gospel. So I think an evangelist does more than just tell someone about Jesus. They actually ask the question, what are you going to do with this now? Are you, you know, Would you consider following Christ? And that actually can be very hard too but what what an evangelist finds is even if an evangelist shares with their friends and family they're willing then to not just stay there and sit there they're willing to go out looking for more people to share the gospel with so i share the gospel with some of my friends from school and most of them don't become christians now i'll still stay friends with them but i'm going to continue to go and meet and encourage more and more people so that i can uh, encourage them with the gospel and that's what jesus talks about in matthew 10 14 and he says uh, when he sends out the disciples uh, in chapter 10 of Matthew, he says, when you go to someone's house to tell them about the good news, if anyone does not welcome you or listen to your word, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that house or town. And what he's saying there is not that um, you're condemning them or you're rejecting them, but if they don't want to listen to the gospel, keep moving. And so I think an evangelist continues to move. So our focus in our culture at the moment in the church of relational evangelism means that sometimes I think Christians actually are sitting in a context where they've shared the gospel with their friends and family. And even if they haven't been rejected, the gospel has been rejected. 
And so I talk to many Christians who go, I just actually have never met someone who's become a Christian. And I think it's because they've heard this message of relational evangelism, go to your friends and your family and tell them about Jesus. But then when your family and friends reject Jesus, what do you do? Do you just say, I'll stop telling people about Jesus because mm. I don't have any other friends because you can only tell your friends about Jesus. Well, I think an evangelist says, I don't even have to be friends with someone to, to share the gospel with them. So I know that's a long answer, but to me that's the... The, the problem I think we have in our culture at the moment of relational evangelism in a culture where it's impolite and even hateful to share the gospel. So that it doesn't surprise me that people love the gospel and then get really stuck. I don't know how to do this now because I've already told my friends and they don't want to actually become Christians. So I think we have to help people to be a bit more mobile and help people to also have a bit more confidence to share the gospel with people they don't know that well as well. I think that could be something that would be interesting to explore. Do you think one of the reasons is, uh, there's something we talked about the last episode, and uh, both Tim and Stu would love to get your answer on this, that if we um, think that we're going to not be able to share the gospel because we perhaps don't have the gifts of the person that shared us the gospel with us originally, mm. does that mean that we can't do it? Like, I can tell the people that I'm close to, like my family and friends, but if going out there, I'm not I'm not like this person. I'm not like, you know, I heard so many talks that you gave, Stu. I'm like, I think originally I was tricked into thinking, I don't think I can be like that. And it perhaps stopped me from actually exploring the gifts that I had in terms of evangelism. Um, Do you think that that's possibly one of the reasons why some people don't feel like they can actually share the gospel? You go first, Tim. Yeah, well, I think um, part of the the image that we might have in our mind of what it means to do evangelism is we think of Billy Graham or, or even around this table, like you and I, Joel, have both seen Stuart stand up in front of you know, hundreds of people mm. um, and do that, not just the gospel outline, but the call for response. Yes. Um, and that might be part of that image that we think, well, that for me to be an evangelist is to have uh, not, not just the, the gifting and the ability, but the platform. Maybe you know, you've never been invited, Joel, to stand up in front of 500 people and um, explain the gospel. But again, that's not how the um, Bible is always talking about how we actually do that kind of evangelism. Um, we talked about, I think, 1 Peter last week, where Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think part of that, part of what we focused on last week was the the fact that that's in a context where Peter's encouraging the people just to live good, quiet lives, but to be such good neighbours, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, friends, that people notice and people go, well, that's curious that you're you're living really peaceable with the people around you and you're not getting flustered. So what, what is that? The preparedness part of that verse, I think, is coming to what would I then say? How do I then mm. have that conversation? And that's where we talked about the Jesus beads mm. last week. Having a gospel outline in our minds where we can say, well, it's because of Jesus. Uh, well, who's Jesus? Well, the Bible story is kind of like this. So part of our preparedness is to have an outline of the Bible. Um, and I also wonder whether how many of our um, the people in our churches have a clarity around being able to tell the story of the Bible in very short, sharp, you know, elevator pitch type setting. Uh, and then to just explore that with someone else and, and see if that person wants to go a little bit further. Uh, and then when questions come, you know, we, we 
live in a culture where there's a lot of pressure against Christianity, the general culture um, and Christian ethics are, are misaligned largely at the moment, um, as opposed to, as Stu said, you know, 60, 70 years ago, there was a much more alignment between cultural ethics and Christian ethics. But as they come further and further apart, there's more questions. Well, why do you think this? Why don't Christians hate this group of people? Or why do you choose this particular lifestyle? Um, and p- again, part of the preparedness is going to be thinking and um, know, researching or finding some good answers or knowing where to go to answer those things. Uh, if people ask about the, you know, can you really trust the Bible though? Isn't it just a, a book of made up fables and myths that's been um, debunked by history and science that the people in our congregation, as they have these conversations just with neighbours and friends or barbers or you know, grocery um, shop attenders, are able to say, oh, well, actually, I know a little bit about that. Um, I've, I've actually done some reading and I've thought about X, Y, Z. Or to be able to say, that's a great question. I don't know. Would you be willing to explore that with me? And so to actually take the person on a journey and invite them into finding the answer would be another way. So I think that is part of how we can all be involved in this sharing the truth and love of Mm. Jesus person to person is that we are sharpening ourselves. And so um, as, as church leaders, we can be helping our people do that. But there's also a responsibility for every Christian to be just slowly sharpening themselves. Pick a topic. Um, you don't have to be an expert in everything. But just pick one thing that you think your neighbours or your family, uh, your peers might ask about and just do a little bit of research. Just do a little bit of reading about those things. Um, find a, a nice short book or there's, yeah, there's a whole lot of a professional apologists on YouTube and um, social media that have really great answers to these kinds of questions. And if we're sharpened for those things, then we can start to engage in those conversations. I mean, uh, I know uh, coming back to the um, thing you're talking about, Stu, about evangelism is also about inviting a response. Do you think that sometimes people are unwilling to invite a response from the people that they're um, interacting with because it's it's almost like they're making a decision between how important the, the salvation of others are compared to their own individualism? I think people can have um, all sorts of... Um pauses when they come to that conversation when there's a moment where they think of something they can share but they pause and go I'm not sure but I think the underlying motivation is love and I think if you really love someone you really love Jesus you really want to introduce someone to Jesus and I remember um, not feeling super confident with how to preach the gospel myself I had no idea if what I was saying was right sometimes and it did stop me sometimes from sharing with people because I even though I was as I already shared, I did tell people about Jesus. As I got older, I became a little bit more clumsy because I started to second-guess myself a bit. I think as a child, I was a bit more naturally just saying, hey, I'm friends with Jesus. Do you want to be friends with Jesus too? So (laughs) it wasn't the most sophisticated gospel presentation, but it's all I knew and I shared what I knew. And I think that's a good starting point for all of us to share what you know. And uh, you know the person you're speaking to, or even if you don't, you can be uh, actually, it is polite to you can have polite conversations about Jesus, and it's not hateful to share what you think about other uh, about Jesus with other people. But we, as adults, we can become we can second guess ourselves a lot more. But if we are motivated by love, then we will find that we will find ourselves sharing 
about Jesus. And the more responses we get, the more we learn about it. So an evangelist is also a really good listener because when you listen to people and you hear what they what troubles them and what things they need. Like Larry Norman was a good listener. He That verse that I read out earlier on was probably a whole list of things that his friends had said they were looking for satisfaction in life from but were not getting it. And he was saying, hey, look, these are all the things that you're looking at. Why don't you look into Jesus? He's got the answer. And after all, didn't Paul do that when he went to Athens? Hey, you've got all these gods everywhere and you've got this God here that's the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. So if we're good listeners and we love, I think most people see that as an authentic expression mm-hmm. of relationship. And I think that to mention Jesus and to talk about him is is actually really important to bring it back to Jesus. Now, my I talked about, you know, growing up in high school, I didn't have a lot of Christian friends and a lot of my friends sort of laughed at me for being a Christian. But around that time, at the end of high school, my dad got my mum and dad bought a Christian bookshop in Bankstown. And my dad asked me to come work in the bookshop part time and I did. But I think my dad picked up pretty quick. I wasn't great at selling stuff and I wasn't great at retail. And somewhere along the line, he said, Stu, why don't you just go out and talk to people about Jesus? Take some of the the material here from the shop and share it with other people. And I remember thinking that was a great idea. So I just walked out and, you know, some people would say, that's terrifying. That's cold, cold face or whatever they call it. Cold calling. Yeah, you know, like just going up to someone cold like that is really hard. How could anyone do it? But I thought, well, I might just go and talk to people. So, you know, there was a, you know, cafeteria area where we, people were just having lunch and stuff. And I'd just go and say, oh, hi, I, I work at the local Christian bookshop. Are you interested in finding out what a Christian believes? And I reckon probably 10% of people said yes. Oh, yeah, that'd be interesting. Why do you have a Christian bookshop? And I tell them, well, because we're really into Jesus. Right, what, what do you think is so good about Jesus? Now, look, probably 10% of people were hostile. Don't talk to me about that. But most people were just like, oh, not really. So when you think of it like that, there's only only 10% of people I found in those th- th- those days were getting cranky about me just coming up and saying, hey, I work in a Christian bookshop. Are you interested in hearing a bit more about that? And and because it was an invitation and it was polite and it was friendly and I had a smile on my face, most people went, oh, look, I'm too busy. I don't want to know. Or, yeah, why not? Come sit down. I'm just having a hamburger. And I really enjoyed that. And I found I got more and more enjoying just talking to people. And because I like people and I like hearing their stories and I like meeting people who are different, I think that is probably a personality thing. I do like, (laughs) Lou, my wife says it's hilarious. Everywhere I go, I talk to people and get to know them, want to find out about them. But um, yeah, there's an interest in that other person, but there's a love for them. And you can love other people even if you don't know them. And so if there's a genuineness in that, I think... That's really helpful. But that actually, my experience motivated me that when I became a youth minister, I'm like, I wonder how I can help the young people in our church not just rely on me. Wouldn't it be awesome if they could feel confident to go and talk to whoever, their friends and other people about Jesus? And then as I was praying about that, one of, two of the young people at church, Sharon and, and uh, Greg, came up and Daniel actually three, with these Jesus beats. So this is a great example of the shock absorber because I didn't come up with the tool that that they were going to end up using. They said, hey, we've come across this. We think our friends would really get this. Do you mind if we use this? And it was the shock absorber because I was actually thinking, well, they understand the culture. They understand what their friends understand even better than I do, even though I like listening. Let's go with this. And what we found was by just giving someone a simple structure, they didn't always say the same thing every time they talked about Jesus, but they felt confident because they didn't second-guess themselves because they're like, 
oh, if you people would actually ask them. That was the beauty of the Jesus beads. People would say, oh, what's with the beads? I haven't seen anyone else. Oh, they're, they're uh, Jesus beads. They tell the story about Jesus. And people go, oh, yeah, how? <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. And they're like, well, blah, 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 blah. And, they go, and then you leave it at that. And people go, okay, cool. And if they want to ask another question, they can. If not, they don't. But what two things happen. One is Christians got confident to be Christians. And yes, we don't wear particular semiotics as a Christian. We clothe ourselves with Christ. That's what we learn from Colossians. And that's our, our character and our humility and our, our life is what you're talking about. Like clothe yourself with Christ and then people will be interested. However, there's nothing wrong with wearing some beads and saying, you know, let me invite you to talk about that. Uh, we found that really, really helpful because Christians were learning to feel not ashamed of being a Christian. And over time, almost all the kids in the high school knew what those Jesus beads were. And just seeing kids wearing them was also like almost a silent witness. Wow, you're willing to associate yourself with this Jesus guy. That's, that's quite impressive that you would do that. And that was also really powerful as well. Um, that's a really interesting, because we, we, we obviously talked about the Jesus beads in the last episode, Tim. Um, and we talk about, uh, I find it interesting that the two things that you guys have both talked about is uh, almost the way that you approach it. So um, when you were at the Christian bookstore with your, your parents, you didn't come up straight to those people in the in the uh, cafeteria and stuff and just say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. It was, you asked them a question first, which was mm-hmm. interesting. What, can you remind me what was the question? It was like, yeah, hey. Yeah, I, mean, I just, went, I'd just go up to someone and say, oh, I work at the Christian book centre that's yeah. just over there. Are you interested? Are you interested at all about what that Christian book centre is. And then they'd say no or yes. Yeah, but that's why I think it's interesting is that you're almost inviting a response there Mm. in a almost non-confrontational way Mm. rather than maybe that's why we feel like there's the pressure of I need to get this 100% right. I need to say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus and then I'm going to convince this person on the first go. But I feel like um, what you were saying there was, and the Jesus beats help with this too, is... Let me invite you into a conversation where we can talk about how we can do it. And I think that's a really great um, uh, encouragement to people that find maybe think that they're not evangelizing or they don't know how to talk to people is like, well, let's be a listener, like you said, Stu, but then also let's uh, have a conversation rather than, can, can I tell you about why I'm interested in Jesus? Is that something that you've seen actually happen as well, Tim? I, I can't recall with strangers, mm. um, I mean, one example I can, I've had two examples in public transport where I was having a conversation with someone else um, about Jesus mm. or church uh, and the person, you know, two rows in front turned around and inquired into our conversation. Really? Okay. Um, and so that was an interesting experience. Um, and so getting to explain that way um, so that was, yeah, that was interesting. And, and again, this person, um, uh, you know, they, they didn't become a Christian on the train or, but yeah, we, we were able to, again, present a, just yeah. a positive view of yeah, this is who Jesus is, this is what we believe, this is what Christians believe, this is the story of the Bible. Um, so that was an interesting time that we had mm. um, having that conversation. Uh, so I've probably had that happen a couple of times. So is that the way that may perhaps one of the ways that we overcome the idea that, the gospel's too hard to share is that we need to change 
how we're actually thinking we should share the gospel. And well, I, I think there's some stereotypes we can unlearn. So there's a whole heap of Christian myths that go around the church. So people will tell you what something is and sometimes you take it as gospel when it might not be straight from the Bible. So look, there are, there are times and places where you can just have an opportunity to, to say, hey, this is the gospel, I'm going to share it with you. What do you think about it? Or it might be, um, hi, I'm just saying hello like I, I don't try and initiate every relationship so that I can share the gospel with someone like I but but I'm just like I share my life with someone I'm getting to know part of that life is Jesus so if if someone's interested in me they're going to probably in Sydney where we come from they're going to probably ask me what do you do for a living which is an easy in for the gospel <laughs> but even before I was working for the church it was like um, what do you do oh, I work for a member of parliament as a staff writer oh yeah what do you do with that and people ask you questions and you can choose what to reveal about yourself you see so if you meet someone and they ask you about yourself you can share about yourself and so you can say oh I like a, I like Cronulla Sharks oh yeah I could pick that you wear a shark shirt you're obviously mm. not pr- you're pretty proud of that uh, yeah yeah I do I like the shark why do you like the sharks blah 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 so people are polite they ask you questions and there is absolutely nothing confronting about saying uh you know I, I yeah and I go to church and I'm a member of this church down the road and blah 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 oh why are you a member one of the great things I've been able to say recently is because we're church planting people say um oh what do you do on the weekend and oh what do you do actually is living and I say oh, I'm a church planter and they go oh why do you plant churches and I say well we plant churches for people who don't go to church and people go, oh, that's different. I thought Christ- churches were for Christians. Well, they are, but we have churches so that people who don't go to church can actually find out why we go to church and they so they can come along too. And that often has started lots of conversations. So it's not about tricking people or manipulating people. It's just actually being excited about who you are as a person and sharing that part of yourself with someone else. And that breaks down this stereotype of evangelism being a job or being a role or being a personality or being a skill. Yeah, there are skills you can learn, but it's just part of who you are as a Christian. And I learned that from my parents who said a Christian is someone who is discipled and being discipled and disciples other people and is someone who shares their faith with other people that's what a christian is so if you're a christian you are both those things you're you're a, your discipleship and mission is part of who you are and that's i think a helpful way of thinking of uh these things myself um i remember i think i've told this story before on the podcast but i remember even you know you guys have been very lovely saying some things about me but like i remember being at soccer one time uh as a soccer dad my son was on the oval playing soccer and one of the other christian dads in the team was talking to one of the dads who doesn't go to church and i was just standing next to them and i heard that the other christian dad who goes to a different church was inviting the other dad who's not a christian to go to his church and i was praying oh lord i pray that 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 guy might go along to the other guy's church but the response of the non-christian dad was really interesting he turned to my friend and he said you're asking me to come to church but you and Stu don't even want to go to church why would i want to go to church and i, went, and I turned around well, what are you talking about and he goes well every time i ask you do you want to come skiing or do you want to go on a surf trip or do you want to come and do this with this go camping you always go oh i'd love to but i've got to go to church and I thought to myself, I think I do say that mm. because I would love to go with you. But yeah, I've got to go to church. But it sounds like I don't really want to go to church because it's like, oh, I've got to go to church. But I'd love to go and do that if I wasn't going to church. And then he said to my friend, he said, why would I go to church if you two don't even want to go to church? <laughs> yeah. And I think that's kind of where we're going in this podcast series. We, I think it starts a little further back. It's like, who am I as a Christian? And why do I belong to a Christian community? And 
how excited am I about that? Because I'm excited about my football team and I'll tell people that, you know, when the Sharks won the grand final in 2016, I'll tell anybody who wants to hear about that moment. I was at the game. I loved it. It was fantastic. And I'll just talk about that. And people expect me to, even if they're a Manly fan. And they don't get offended if they go for another club other than the Cronulla Sharks or they don't usually get offended if they like netball rather than rugby league or they don't even like sport. They're just like, I'm getting to know you and you like this. So I think it's, it is um, a really exciting thing to challenge that stereotype of Christianity, sorry, of evangelism being a, a personality or it being a skill or a job. Like I said, there, is, there are some people who are more gifted by the spirit to do even more evangelism, but I think we all can do evangelism. Yeah, I think that I think that's an amazing way to wrap it up, wrap up the episode. I did have a question though. Now, Tim, do you have to head off, or are you, are you happy to answer this question that's come in? Oh, I should probably go and do school pickup. So I'm going to you, leave you, you guys with the questions from previous episodes. <laughs> yeah, go, um, go ahead, you you shoot off, and we'll we'll answer this question from we'll Leonie. Thanks, Tim. That's Thanks, great. Mate. So, Stu, thank you again for that. That was a great way to wrap it up, but. We've got a question from Leonie, who attends our church, and she uh, recently listened to the episode on Taming Parlour when we talked about loneliness. And you weren't on that episode, so we'll, we'll see how we go with this question. But And she said that we mentioned loneliness become, uh, can come from an unfulfilled expectations in the way we relate to ourselves and in the way we relate to others and how they relate to us. I'm interested in how you think God's word and the Holy Spirit can help shape our expectations of ourselves, others, and relationships. What do you think? So, Leonie's saying that our expectations of ourselves yeah, and others can contribute to loneliness? Yes, yeah, so we have unfil- unfulfilled expectations in terms of, like, this is how my life should be. Mm. Um, I have to go back and listen to the episode again because it was mm. quite a while ago, mm. but it was more just we have unfulfilled expectations, so therefore... Uh, what the expectations we have and then how we translate that into the rest of our lives actually leads to further loneliness rather Mm. than if we listen to God's word and then make sure we're in community with God's people, we're probably less likely to feel lonely. Do you think you have any... I think that's a really insightful uh, question from Leonie because, yeah, Leonie does go to Soul Revival Church and she's one of the leaders in our church and I've... uh, I've had conversations with Leonie before about how important it is for us to have realistic expectations Mm. of church and of other Christians and of ourselves. And there is a theological term that might be helpful in answering this question. It's called over-realized eschatology. And eschatology is our view of the end times. So eschatology is the end times. And an over-realized eschatology is um, the idea of how we are going to live forever in the kingdom of heaven and the hope we have in eternity should inform how we live now. But we live now in a now-not-yet tension where it's not perfect. So in, in other words, our, in the end times when we're in heaven, at, at the end of time when we're in heaven uh, with God as Christians, it will be perfect because we will have no more sin. So at the moment, though, I am still a sinner and I'm a forgiven sinner and I've got the Holy Spirit and the spiritual nature given to me by the Holy Spirit but my spiritual nature is at war with my sinful nature. Mm. And so uh, that's what Paul talks about in Galatians. So a realized eschatology is, sorry, an over-realized eschatology is because heaven is going to be absolutely perfect with no sin, sometimes I ask myself the question, well, why is the church not perfect now? Mm. 
And sometimes I expect the church to be perfect now because that's what the Bible says we should be like. So I might read a passage about bear one another's burdens and I think, well, that's fantastic. The church should bear my burdens for me. And then when the church doesn't bear my burdens as I need it to, I might get really disappointed by the church and withdraw from the church. Mm. Or I might think, um, you know, the Bible says that uh, there's so many passages in the New Testament saying love one another as Christ has loved us so that the world will know that we are his disciples. I think um, actually I've got a verse on John fifteen twelve. I was going to mention with regard to evangelism earlier, but Jesus says that like love one another and the world will go, wow, look at you guys. You love each other so well that I want to get to know this Jesus who motivates your love. But sometimes we're not like that. We're not perfect. And sometimes that can be really um, unnerving for us as Christians because we're like, hang on, we're supposed to be loving one another, but I don't feel loved by this group. And so I might withdraw because I feel disappointed. But the term over-realized eschatology is where we make the mistake to think the church should be perfect now or close to as it will be in heaven. So that's an expectation. Yeah, right? the over-realized eschatology is an, an over-realized es- expectation of how good the church should be. So if I'm understanding Leone's question properly, we can have too high expectation on how the church or other Christians and even ourselves should be. Mm. So we might withdraw from church because we've had an argument with someone or the church has let us down in some way or because we're not actually living a life that we think we should be living. But what we should replace unrealized, uh, over-realized eschatology with is a realized eschatology. So what, what that is, is yes, we will be perfect in heaven, but at the moment we fight the fight of faith every day. And, and you know, we... We are forgiven of our sin, but we still continue to sin and we still say to God, I'm so sorry, but we have victory over sin because we are being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about that, that the Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus every day. So we are meant to work with the Spirit as he makes us uh, grow as Christians. But sometimes we get impatient and we expect too much of ourselves or we expect too much of other Christians. So if a, a Christian lies to us that can be incredibly uh dreadful and devastating for our faith but to actually go well actually that person's a sinner as well as a christian and they will be perfect in heaven but you know that that's not right and i shouldn't just say that's okay but it it doesn't stop me going to church because that sort of thing happened again as i was talking in this episode about my mum and dad my father's from england and he's he's from yorkshire and he's quite pragmatic and he said to me when I was young, he said, Stuart, if a Christian does the right thing, be surprised. And I said, but shouldn't I expect a Christian to do the right thing? He said, no, no, if a Christian does the right thing, that means they've been transformed by Jesus and they're, you know, but expect them to not always do the right thing. So that's, I think, a Yorkshire version of of (laughs) not being disappointed because of too higher expectations. Mm, Yeah, I always think about... uh it says the the world is groaning groaning under the weight yeah, of sin, yeah. and sometimes in Romans, Paul talks yeah, about that. and in sometimes Romans maybe well. we are because we're like, oh, we've been forgiven, and like we, you know, I enjoy being part of a community with mm. Christians. That sometimes when things happen, that that maybe tricks us to thinking, oh, we sh- the weight the weight of the world isn't on our shoulders, and we're not groaning under the weight of sin. But the thing is that people are experiencing that at different times. So yeah, like, and then I suppose the expectations can be influenced by sin and then we can go oh well actually we need to have that realized Mm. eschatology that you're talking about and it's not easy so i want to encourage everyone it's really not easy and if if you are feeling lonely um you know it uh 
reach out if if you can to your local church uh if you don't know one you can get in contact with us uh, on the podcast mm. but um just to finish I, I remember one day i think it was 14 so i was right in the peak worried about myself high expectations disappointed with the church mm. zone of my life yeah. and i remember i was standing up against the wall at church after church had finished and there was a group of teenagers and they were all talking to each other and i was standing up against the wall waiting for one of them to ask me to go over and join them or at least they all come over and talk to me and my dad again saw me there and he said what are you doing standing up against the wall by yourself when all those young people are over there i said oh no one's interested in talking to me i'm going to wait until they come over and talk to me and he goes no one's going to come and talk to you <laughs> and i looked at him he goes why would they want to come and talk to you they've already got each other to talk to mm -hmm. but they're christians they should come and talk to me he goes Stuart, just go and talk to them if you want to talk to them you go talk to them and i went yeah, I suppose that makes sense. That's a, that's a realised eschatology. I mean, in a perfect world, they would have noticed that there was a person that was by themselves. And I would hope that most times in churches, if someone is by themselves, Christians would notice. But sometimes they don't. And if and I just thought to myself, well, it's hard but I, and embarrassing, but I might go over and introduce myself. And when I did, I went, hi, my name's Stuart. And I started talking. And they went, oh, hi, how are you going? They are happy to talk to me. So, yeah, I think Leone's onto something there. I think it's really... It's a really important question. Something to keep thinking and praying about. So, yeah, that was a great answer, though. Thank you very much. Um, that wraps us up for this episode of Season 5 of The Shock Absorber. Uh, you can always get involved in the discussion, guys, whether you are listening on the audio version or watching it on YouTube. Uh, you can chuck something in the comments on YouTube. You can email me at joel at shockabsorber.com.au. You can get on the Discord, which is uh, in the show notes, so you can check that out, too. Um, but always check a like or subscribe if you're on YouTube or subscribe on your favourite podcast app. But to finish up, as always, shoot, we like to say a one way. way.